people of Israel multiply and the Egyptians begin to fear. Soon Pharaoh begins oppressing Israel and sets the stage for God's great deliverance on The Bible Brief. Time is relative. To a two-year-old, a week is a long time to wait for something. To a teenager, a few months can seem like a great distance. To a young adult, several years of waiting might test one's patience. But something happens as we age, and especially as we become elderly. The relativity of time finds its expression in full force. For a 50-year-old, a few years might be trying, but not insurmountable. At 75, a decade feels like just a few years. And if God allows one to hit the age of 100, a year feels almost like a breath in and out. Experience shows us that time is relative. Now imagine that you are an eternal being. A being not 100, not 1,000, not 100,000 years old, but a being ageless in essence and timeless in experience. What do you think a year is like for a being like that? What do you think a millennium is like for a being like that? In the next stage of the Bible story, we're going to meet the man, the writer, who penned this truth about God. He says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. This man understood that a thousand years is like a single day for God. It's like a night passing. This simple truth is critical to remember as we read the Bible, because we tend to count time in human terms. We count time like two-year-olds, thinking days are short and years are long. But God counts time in a wholly different way. He counts time as if a thousand years were simply a day. When God apparently delays, we may think that He forgets. When all seems lost, we may think that He doesn't see us. When darkness overtakes us, we may forget that it was just yesterday for God when He said, let there be light. God is a God who remembers. Even a promise made many, many years ago as we count time is a promise made just yesterday for God. And God never forgets His promises. It's been nearly 400 years since Jacob's family moved to Egypt. The man, renamed Israel after wrestling with God, came to Egypt with his whole family, including all his sons and their families. The little clan of Israel had been invited there by Pharaoh himself, after Joseph had saved the nation from a severe seven-year famine. Due to Joseph's wise management of the crops and resources of Egypt, he had saved many people from the famine, despite his origins in Egypt as an obscure Hebrew slave. Joseph had helped Pharaoh, and Pharaoh helped Joseph's family by allowing them to settle in Egypt for the remainder of the famine. 
that family, made of 70 persons in all, would grow from the 12 sons of Israel to the 12 tribes of Israel. Tribes that would grow from generation to generation as they pastured the land of Goshen within Egypt. Tribes that would pass down the stories of their ancestors who had encountered God and to whom God made amazing promises. Promises of the land of Canaan, seed in abundance, and blessing to all the nations of the world through a particular seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises passed through each generation, from father to son, from mother to daughter, decade after decade, century after century. And the nation grew from 70 to over 700,000 over hundreds of years. Even so, the promises weren't forgotten by the people. The people did begin to wonder, however, had God forgotten? The Israelites had communally maintained a cultural memory of the events of the fathers and the promises of God. They had passed them down over time. But the Egyptians, they apparently had issues passing down memories. Eventually, they forgot about Joseph, and they forgot about all that he had done for them. They forgot about God and how he had empowered Joseph to save so many from starvation. They forgot why the Israelites were even in the best of the land of Egypt. And this forgetting sets the stage for some of the most important events in the Bible. We read this in Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The Israelites built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The forgetting of the Egyptians spells trouble for the Israelites. The Egyptians begin to fear that the sheer size of the Israelite nation in Goshen was a threat to them, and the Israelites could cause social unrest if they were to rebel in some way. Not only that, but apparently Pharaoh wanted to keep the Israelites in Egypt because they contributed significantly to the productive capabilities of the land. So Pharaoh launches a campaign of forced labor upon the nation and oppresses them severely as he has them build the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. These Israelite slaves have bitter lives of difficult service with ruthless taskmasters. The free nation that had come to Egypt had become hundreds of thousands of slaves to a fearful Egyptian despot. And yet, Despite this oppression, the people of Israel continued to expand in population and multiply. Despite the oppression, they continued to have multitudes of children. Instead of slavery tamping down on the Israelites, it was having the opposite effect and expanding their population even more. But soon, Pharaoh has a plan for this, too. We read, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, 
and see them on the birthstool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Pharaoh commands the slaughter of any newborn Hebrew son. And not only that, he commands the Hebrew midwives to do the dirty work. He wants them to kill the sons who they help bring forth from the womb. He wants the helpful doctor to become the murderer. Something not so alien in our modern world. But the midwives know better than to listen to their murderous overlord, to whom they tell an apparently tall tale about the Hebrew versus the Egyptian mothers. We read, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the Israelites multiplied and grew very strong. And because the childless midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded to all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. With no success in commanding the midwives to kill the newborn Hebrew boys, Pharaoh decides to commission his own people to kill them. Apparently, this wasn't just a few Egyptians he had asked either. It says that Pharaoh commanded all his people to cast the sons of the Hebrews into the Nile. The Israelites would now have all the watchful eyes of the Egyptians looking for every newborn baby boy born to the Israelites. Imagine being a Hebrew mother during this time, with the odd mixture of joy and dread upon seeing that you are pregnant, hoping perhaps that it was a girl so you could be saved the agony of seeing your newborn son thrown into the Nile by an Egyptian. Yet at the same time, hoping that if it were a boy, you might be able to somehow hide him for a few years as he grew. Imagine being a father with no hope to protect your newborn son because of the abuse of your Egyptian taskmasters, each day coming home nearly collapsing under the physical toll of the labor forced upon you by Pharaoh. Imagine being a young child, too old to be cast in the river, but not too old to see the crushing agony of your newborn baby relatives being taken and thrown into the river by some older, stern-faced Egyptians. Imagine any of those people thinking about the stories that they had heard growing up. Stories of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was powerful beyond measure. Stories that may have made them think, where is God now? Has he forgotten us? Pharaoh was determined to stifle and destroy this population that he feared. He was determined to oppress them enslave them, embitter their lives, and ruthlessly command them to build his empire. His mind was set to empower his empire on the backs and on the lives of his Hebrew slaves, no matter the cost. But what he didn't know was something about God that we've come to learn in the Bible so far. Pharaoh didn't know that God specializes in difficult situations. He didn't know that God can make the barren sing for joy at the birth of a son, or that he can defeat armies of nations with just a few hundred men. He didn't know that God had taken a single enslaved Hebrew and made him the master of a nation. After all, this Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, 
and didn't know Joseph's God. And this Egyptian forgetting would spell the defeat of Pharaoh's nation. Join us next time as we see the birth of the baby boy that God will use to bring Egypt to its knees. A baby who grows up into who the Bible calls the man of God. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. 